son Caleb loved football. He loved it from the moment that he put on a little flag as a kindergartner to play flag football at our little small town in Tennessee until the day he pulled his pads off his senior year of college. He loved football. He would tell you he loved everything about it. He loved practice. He loved going to the weight room. He loved film study. He also loved playing. He loved everything about football. But if you were to ask him, and he's here today on deacon duty, if you were to ask him, is there anything about football you didn't like? He'd say, yeah. I didn't like it when my quarterback threw an interception. Uh, he was an offensive lineman. And in offensive line, you're on attack mode all the time, and you're knowing where you're going, and it's controlled chaos, you know, that kind of thing. But when the quarterback throws a pick, it's just chaos. And Caleb knew that the moment that that happened, every smaller guy on the field was looking to absolutely clean his clock. Because at the time, there was this thing called a, a blindside block, which was completely unregulated. And so Caleb knew that as he was huffing and puffing, trying to chase a guy that, frankly, he was never going to catch, that some little guy would try to catch him napping and then hit him from his blindside take him off his feet and cause the first part of his body to hit the ground be the back of his head. Caleb didn't want anything to do with that. And so, I kid you not, I kid you not, anytime his quarterback threw an interception, Caleb looked both ways and proceeded with extreme caution the rest of the way. Because, because he knew that if you weren't ready for contact playing football, you were going to get smoked. And he didn't have any desire for that. Well, the author of the book of Jude is writing a group of churches, and he's essentially saying to them, the ball's been picked off, and you're completely unprepared for the contact that is coming at your blind side. And he is writing to them to say, this false teaching that has started to creep in your church is about to clean your clock. And you need a defensive plan. You need to be ready for contact. You need to defend yourself from these threats that are coming. And so our verses today, which I think are probably the most relevant and important in the book of Jude, our verses today help his readers form that battle plan. If you'll see verse 8, he has just concluded explaining to them that this false teaching is present. He's alluded a little bit to what it is. It's this idea that my grace received from Jesus and salvation is so comprehensive that it allows me to sin will-nil. Uh, it, it, I, I can, I'm free to sin because God's grace is so much. That's kind of hints at what it is, but he's about to go into more depth. And so he says of these false teachers in their midst, yet in like manner, these people, the false teachers, also relying on dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. First things first. How did they reach this spiritual conclusion? And it is through a casting off of the authority of God's word. They were appealing to a direct revelation from God. God has said this that I'm advocating to you. We'll get to what that is directly in a minute. God has said this to me, and because God has said this to me, I can lay aside what God's Word 
actually says. So what is it that God had said to them that was leading them to say to everybody else, I know God's word says X, but you can set that aside because I have heard from God that it's this way. What was going on? Well, he he gives three things that are characteristic of these, these direct revelations from God. It says it leads their followers to defile the flesh. That is almost certainly a reference to sexual immorality. And because it is almost certainly a reference to sexual immorality, we, we can see that he's already raised the specter of this being a problem just a few verses earlier when he alludes to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because he alludes to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, knowing that event from the Old Testament, it is likely that not only was this sexual immorality non-normative, non-in-the-confines-of-marriage heterosexual sexual expression, but was also same-sex sexual expression. There had been a casting off of restraint on what God's Word said in this area because God said that, to me, it's okay, so we're free to express ourselves however we choose. So it is characterized first by a defiling of the flesh and then a rejection of authority. And how Jude words this here makes it clear that the authority that is being rejected is not his, but it's God's, that these false teachers are rejecting authority. Now, these false teachers would say, we are not rejecting authority. We've said that God has said this to me. We're only doing what God said to do. But Jude is saying, by ignoring what God's word has actually said, you are ultimately rejecting the authority of God and just creating a figment of your imagination as a revelation from God to justify doing what your sinful appetites want you to do. So, it's a defiling of the flesh, sexual immorality, a rejection of authority, But then he says this, he says that this false teaching is leading to uh, them blaspheming the glorious ones. And I've just got to be honest with you there. We really don't have any idea specifically what that means. There's debate as to what the glorious ones mean. There's debate on on to how this was actually expressed. The best guess that I have based on the actual continuing argument that Jude is about to make is that this is a, a, a blaspheming of the spiritual realm, that they have placed themselves above the spiritual realm to where they are styling themselves something as spiritual superheroes. But that's, I'm going to tell you right now, that's something of an educated guess. We don't know exactly what he is referencing, but we do know it vexed him greatly because he gives more attention to this particular issue than any of the other. And he offers, by way of uh, illustration, these words in verse 9. Again, kind of unpacking the blaspheming of the glorious ones. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, you may be thinking, uh, I didn't learn that in Bible school. No one taught me that in Sunday school. When I was a little kid and there was a felt board, this is how old I am. When you, felt boards, raise your hand. Anybody? There you go, amen. Uh, when I was a little kid and there was a felt board, I didn't see those things put up on the felt board describing for me that story. There's a reason that maybe you're not familiar with that story. It comes from a non-biblical, non-canonical 
book that was in circulation at the time called The Assumption of Moses. We do not have a copy uh, of The Assumption of Moses in the modern world. It's no longer in existence. The only reason we know it exists is because it was referred to in the first century writings and that there's enough of those references for us to be able to tell when, when something is being quoted from it. That's what he's doing here. He's not quoting it as scripture. There's no introductory formula, formula like it is written, or thus saith the Lord. But he is using something commonly known to provide an illustration. And the illustration is very simple. Not even the archangel Michael would presume to blaspheme even Satan. He left that to the Lord. He said, the Lord judges you. So what he's saying, whatever this blaspheming of the glorious ones is references how they have set themselves above and apart from everything spiritual, making themselves something of spiritual superheroes and, and in need of being listened to. But uh, I, I don't think that uh, Jude thinks much of their self-anointed spiritual superhero stature because he says this in verse 10. He said, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. He's saying here, these people who claim to understand God's will more actually don't know God's will at all because they're rejecting Scripture. And they're blaspheming it by running away from it and what it instructs us to do. And then he says, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He's going to say, if you want to know what these false teachers know better than anyone else, it's this. They know how to feed their evil sensual desires. They're better at that than anybody else. So, so Jude does not think much of them at all. He is saying far from being spiritual superheroes, these people who are appealing to direct revelation of God to ignore scripture, to defile their flesh and reject authority and set themselves up as spiritual superheroes as are worthy of judgment. And we see that that tendency in his argument began with the word woe in verse 11. Woe to them. And he says three things. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now that actually references three events that we see in the Old Testament. We know Genesis chapter 4 that Cain murdered his brother Abel in a fit of rage. We know that there was a prophet for hire in the book of Numbers named Balaam who was hired by the king of Moab to pronounce judgment on the people of Israel. And Balaam cashed the check but said, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce judgment on God's people, but I can tell you how to get God to pronounce judgment on them, and that is by enticing them to sexual immorality, which the king of Moab did, and it proved to be a stumbling block from Israel. The last reference is a reference to Korah's rebellion, where a man named Korah rebelled against the leadership of Moses in the wilderness when the People were between their slavery in Egypt and coming into the promised land and led many in rebellion with him, and they were all destroyed in judgment by God. Now, what is he saying by referencing these three events from Scripture? He's saying these false teachers, like Cain, chose disobedience over obedience. These false teachers, like Balaam, 
are for hire, alluding, and we'll see this again in just a moment, alluding to the fact that they probably said, God has shared very special words with me, and I'm happy to share them with you for a price like Balaam, but also like Balaam, they had put a stumbling block of sexual immorality before God's people, and it was causing people in the church to betray biblical sexual ethics. And then like Korah, these false teachers rejected any kind of authority over their lives. So pulling back for just a little bit, Jude is saying that these people are using their so-called direct revelation from God to say we don't have to do what God's Word says and it's leading the people in the church to indulge their fleshly, sensual appetites and it's going to lead to their judgment. And Jude is saying to them, they're right there among you and you're not doing a thing about it. You're just letting it go. I wanted, going back to to verses 1 and 2, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation and to celebrate what we have in Jesus. But I heard you're putting up with this nonsense in the church, and so I'm having to write to you to say you need to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And he's about to unload on them. Here's how he does it. He says in verse 12, referencing how they're just putting up with that, he said, these people are hidden reefs at your love feast. Love feasts were first century potlucks for churches. And they would gather because church was primarily experienced in the home. They would gather for a meal. And as a component of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, in your midst, they're hidden reefs. Everything looks fine on top, but they're going to shipwreck you. He says, in fact, they feast without fear. They know you're not going to do anything. You're just going to ignore it and let it go. Then he says they're shepherds feeding themselves. Again, referencing the fact that they're not really there to help God's people and feed God's people, but they're there to nourish their own identity, to build up their own pride, probably line their own pocketbooks. He says that they are waterless clouds swept along by the winds. They're not offering rain and nourishment to the land. They're bringing famine and drought to the land, to the church. He says they are fruitless trees in late autumn. You go to a tree in autumn, you cannot expect to be nourished from the fruit of its branches. It's already been harvested. You can't expect to be uh, able to rest under its shade. The leaves are all gone. And then he actually says they're twice dead, meaning that they're uprooted. What is he alluding to here? He's saying there's not even the hope of, of something to come better later. They're uprooted. They're never going to produce anything. He says they're wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Rather than draw God's people into a deeper communion with him, they are rushing to and fro in the church and just churning up their own shame, calling it spiritual liberty. He says they're wandering stars. Meaning what? Meaning that we can look to the, the starry skies and we can predict and know the seasons because everything moves in a rhythmic passage, or, uh, rhythmic way, but but these are stars that just shoot across the sky with, with no ability to fit in or guide or lead or help us adapt to our world. And he says these wandering stars are those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're going to experience judgment, and you're putting up with it. 
You're, you're, letting it, you're letting it rest right there in your midst. He goes on to say, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. This is another reference, a direct quotation from a non-biblical, non-canonical book called the Book of Enoch. It was in wide circulation at the time. In fact, we have copies of this preserved for us in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Once again, he's not quoting it as scripture. He doesn't have a typical introductory formula like it is written, or thus saith the Lord, but everybody knew it, and he's referencing Enoch's words in this book that everybody knew of judgment on the ungodly. He says judgment is going to fall on these false teachers and all that follow them, and they deserve it. Verse 16, because these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. There are false teachers in your midst, church, Jude is saying. And they're about to clean your clock. And you need to defend yourself. You need to wake up and defend yourself against false teachers and false teaching. If there's anything that has become more apparent to me as the leader with others of a local church in the past several years, it is the ease with which people hurl accusations that so-and-so is a false teacher. And this is a false teaching. A well-intended church member sent me an email with a link to a website several months ago that they wanted me to review, and I did. But not wanting to know more about this particular website, I linked on an article that I could not resist. The article link was Top 10 False Teachers in the Modern Church. <laughs> it proved irresistible. I clicked it. One of, one of them was a friend who has spoken in this place at my invitation. Several of them provide curriculum for us that we use and that you have been blessed by. And one of them is like my favorite author of all time. And I thought, have I missed it that badly? I mean, have I forsaken my duty is one of the shepherds of this church to protect the flock? Are these, are these false teachers? How can I know if they're false teachers? What can I do if they are false teachers? What do I do? And as I've read the book of Jude and studied the book of Jude, I've seen, especially in the words that we have just read, something of a battle plan that will help us deal with with false teaching when it manifests itself. Here's the first thing that we learn in the words that we just read. As a way of defending ourselves, we need to remain alert to the destructiveness of false teaching. Destructiveness of false teaching. 
False teaching will manifest itself characteristically in some predictable ways. And Jude has tracked all of them in the words that we have just read. So let me help you remember what those ways are so you can be alert. By remembering the word fight. What a terrible word. It's a bad word. But we are told in Jude that when false teaching and teachers creep in, we are to contend earnestly for the faith. So it's an appropriate word. F, they will destroy fidelity to God's word. False teachers will destroy fidelity to God's word. They will say, I know God's word is actually saying this, but, but God has told me this, or I have come to this conclusion which trumps what God's Word says. Or they will place something in front of God's Word, and that becomes the lens through which they read God's Word rather than God's Word becoming the filter through which they assess that something. They destroy fidelity to God's Word. They destroy integrity. Integrity. There will be an abandonment to a commitment of personal holiness. It will lead us away from the moral universe of Scripture to a moral universe of society's own creation. And that can be not only in an action, it can be uh, in an attitude, it can be in an allegiance. Destroy fidelity to God's Word. Destroy integrity. G, cast off governance. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. I am my own authority. I am the only one who is right about this particular situation. And everybody that's trying to tell me different is wrong. One of the ways that you can identify um, a false teacher is by just asking them, how many different churches have you been a part of in the last 10 or 20 years? You'll usually figure out they've been a part of a lot because as soon as someone presses in and says, brother, that's wrong, sister, that's wrong, they hit the bricks and Uh, say that they're just running from a compromised church. So, destroy fidelity to God's word, destroy personal integrity, cast off governance. Next, H, they, they cast off humility. They destroy humility. I know better about this particular thing than anybody else. And there's an incredible, arrogant, typically legalistic spiritual pride that shows itself. And then T, They destroy togetherness. They divide the body. Because they've abandoned that which should unite us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as rooted and founded in God's word, in favor of their opinions, in favor of their direct revelations, in favor of their contrary teaching, it causes God's people to divide and to fragment. We need to remain alert to the destructiveness of false teaching, and it will show itself in an destruction of fidelity to God's word, a destruction of integrity, a casting off of governance, no authority in my life, a lack of humility, and a destroying of unity. It'll do that. We need to remain alert to those things. And then next, we need to remain focused on the destruction of false teaching and teachers. We've seen in the book that that there is a a judgment that is coming for those that would lead God's people astray. And we need to voice that coming destruction when we encounter false 
teaching and when we encounter false teachers, but because we are all saved by the grace of our Lord and Jesus Christ, when we are confronting false teachers and false teaching while we need to fight and, and contend earnestly against the false teaching, we need to labor that that false teacher be brought into the faith. Because if we go into our grave without a, a, a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture and a, and a commitment to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, our destination for eternity is hell. And no one should want that for anyone. God himself does not take delight in the judgment of the wicked. So, so we need to remain focused on, on the effect of that, not only in the church, but on false teachers and bring them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first little thing here. No one that was on that list was a false teacher. Not a one. There might have been some things that we would disagree with, but none of them were false teachers. And I would just point out to you that Romans chapter 1, which we'll get to in several more weeks, Romans chapter 1 says that one of the kinds of people who do not inherit the kingdom of God are slanderers. And so when you point at a brother and sister in Christ with which whom you, who you disagree with about a particular issue and call him a false teacher, then you need to read Romans 1 and back it up. But now let's deal with actual false teaching. I, I've been your pastor here at Blue Valley for 14 and a half years. I can honestly say that in those 14 and a half years, there has never been a false teacher in our church. Not from the pulpit, not in Sunday school, not collecting a following to themselves. There's never been a false teacher at Blue Valley Baptist Church. But we do have the interwebs. And I have heard the presence of false teachers and false teaching in, in not just the Blue Valley Church family. I've been doing this for 35 years vocationally. For, for 35 of my 55 years, this is what I've been doing. And, and, and I've heard the presence of that all the way back in the late 80s. Nothing's changed. What is threatening the church and what the church is putting up with today in 2021 is the same stuff that was threatening the church and the church was putting up with in 1986. There are just two main threats that exist in the local church from my experience as a pastor that are threatening to clean our clock. And that's all the time we have, and I'm going to close. <laughs> and here they are. Number one, a slow erosion of a commitment to a biblical sexual ethic. I told Pastor Jonathan when he was youth minister here that the number one threat to the belief that God's word was, when, was inerrant and infallible to the coming generation was what they thought about gender and sexuality. And what I see and what I've seen is a casting off of what the Bible says about this aspect of our lives. And you're saying, well, that's all because of the LGBTQ movement. No, it's not. Folks, this goes back to the church turning a blind eye to no-fault divorce 50 years ago. 
This has been in existence in the church, and it's just metastasized in a way now that you find distasteful. But we've put up with it a long time. We're ignoring what God's Word says to feed our desires. That's the first thing. The second thing that has continued to be a problem and will continue to be a problem is the syncretism between religion and politics, between faith and politics. What we have done is we have put whatever political bias or allegiance we have in front of the Bible and we're reading that back into the Bible, then read the Bible forward and out. And you're saying, Derek, you're overstating that. No, I'm not. I'll give you a story that you're going to think I'm making up, but I'm no longer preaching. I'm telling the truth. All right, so you ready? In the past year, I uh, received an email from a now former church member who um, really believed that I and the elders had imported a false teaching into the church. They had a profound theological, this is what they claimed, profound theological issue with, with what we had done. And so this person wanted to meet with me, but they said, before I meet with you, about this profound theological issue. Before I meet with you, I need to know where you're coming from, so I'm going to ask you some questions for you to reply to. There were about eight. I really don't remember what all of them were, but I remember the first one. Remember, I have a profound theological disagreement with you. I'm very concerned you're importing false teaching into the church. I need to know the answers to these pertinent questions. Question number one, how have you voted in every presidential election back to 2000? Look, I've got the email. I've all but framed the email <laughs> as a demonstration to you that when you say at times, as I know you do, Derek worries too much about this. Derek does not worry too much about this. We have zero daylight between our political allegiances and what God's word says and our faithfulness to God's word. And the only thing that's going to change about this, and I see it happening, is that the nature of the allegiance is going to flip. I've already seen it. I mean, I've labored, I've labored as, a, as a pastor for years under the whole idea that, that, that if you don't vote this way, you're not a Christian, and now it's flipping the other way, and I hear it. We never fix the problem. We just jerk wildly from one ditch to the next. And it's destroying our voice in this culture. I guarantee you that if I went to people that I know and care about, that I live near, in, 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 my, in my neighborhood and ask them what's Christianity all about, they wouldn't be able to tell me apart from some kind of political description. We're losing our voice. These things are present in the church and they are cleaning our clock. We're huffing and puffing over some boogeyman we're never going to catch, mainly because they don't really exist. And we're about to get blindsided. And so remain alert to the real telltale destructiveness of false teaching. Remain focused on what happens when that is ingested in a church or in someone's life. And then keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Because the moment 
that we step out of this body into our spiritual ones and the moment we go to be with him forever, we will see with a great degree, I think, of grief what we put up with when we shouldn't have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.